Welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Cabaret. A female girly club entertainer in Weimar Republic era Berlin romances two men while the Nazi party rises to power around them. This is just a classic. The classic musical. What an experience. What a ride of a movie. And in order to talk about this, we have to have a guest. David, who is our guest today? Our guest today is an incredibly awesome voice actor, part of the Lafrasian Chronicles, and they are one of our favorite guests returning to the show. It is ML Earhart. ML, welcome back. Hello. I am so thrilled to be making my return and thrilled to be making my return in a musical. Take that, Adrian College. <laughs> I told you I would be on the internet doing shit with musicals. You, you never believed in me. And here <laughs> I am. I'm doing it. And you don't even have a theater department anymore. <gasps> See? Well, there you go. Like, that's how much they needed you. They needed your talent. They ceased to exist. So, Emma, what is your experience with Cabaret? So, the film Cabaret, I saw when I first got into my musical theater kick around between like 10 and 13 when I went to the public library and rented every filmed musical that they had. Nice. So Cabaret was in pretty heavy rotation for a few years. And then after that, I've seen, oh God, a dozen or more separate stage productions of cabaret throughout my life i've probably seen it on stage more times than i've watched the film so i actually came into the movie with a lot of weird expectations mm -hmm. of like weird amateur productions that i didn't get fulfilled by this <laughs> hollywood film <laughs> interesting okay you know what's sad mm -hmm. i have a lot of uh love for cabaret and i've never seen a full production nor had i ever seen this film until we watched it for this show i knew of it i knew songs from it but it's so weird the way that you can have a relationship with a musical and that relationship can exist entirely with its soundtrack having never sure. experienced any visual engagement with it whatsoever I think that's most people. And that tends to be the argument with people not wanting Broadway uh, musicals to be made into films. So like, well, then you won't go see it in person. And it's just like, go ask anybody who loves musicals. They will see that movie. They will go see that stage production when they are able to. Like, Especially if the adaptation is particularly good. Yeah. Like it's, it's not going to change. It's just some people are never going to go to the theater, the physical live musical theater production. They're never going to do it. Absolutely. They will go see a movie. And then there are sickos like me who are going to see every production of a chorus line that's produced in the tri-state area <laughs> yep. because they love a chorus line there you go. and they especially love it when it's not good. <laughs> it might yeah. be even better then. <laughs> You're not wrong. Look, the dream for me is at some point to see a production of this with Alan Cumming as the MC. That's the dream. Which they've done three times now. Yep. I know. I, I want to see all of them. There's probably a chance he'll do it one more run. And, you know, that would be, that's the one I would pay good money for. I would also, you know, just go find somebody ripping the VHS version that they filmed in 93 because they totally did do one. I also would like the full show version 
uh, from the cast of Shit's Creek that they did in universe. I want that version of Cabaret as well. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> because it's phenomenal. For real. That's the one that I want to see. <laughs> and I learned more about Cabaret from that episode of television than I had previously in my life. It's like, oh, they, they play more songs and I get more information about the characters from this episode. So this movie. Yeah, this is, this is, we're talking about a film. <laughs> well, we are talking about a film and it's a film that is significantly different than the staged version. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, in, in several interesting places. Well, and significantly different, not only from the original stage version, mm-hmm. which the person who created that is also helming this movie, but also then they totally revamped it when they revived it with Sam Mendes mm-hmm. and Alan Cumming. And that's sort of the version that gets rehashed now. They really build it off that newer version. Mm-hmm. But even then, it's just like the iterations that Cabaret has gone through. And again... You know, we're going to talk we're going to talk about him a lot here. But one of the things about Bob Fosse musicals is it's pretty easy to kind of wholesale reinvent them if you want to. Mm-hmm. They're so sparsely produced in the first place, which this is the genius of Hal Prince, too. I will say this and that you can take a Bob Fosse story and reinvent it. Sure. What you cannot get away from is that choreography. Oh no, absolutely not. Because that's that's a that's a musical crime. <laughs> that's a dance crime. <laughs> and it's just it's it's amazing and Bob Fosse is he's a whole thing. <laughs> yeah, he is. And we're going to talk about him quite a lot. I don't know how to feel about the movie. I don't think it's bad, but I did find myself many times going like, "Okay, could we get on with it?" Mhm. It feels like Everyone in the picture needs a number two to warm up. That's fair. Yeah. The biggest thing that I had in my notes, and it changed drastically between the beginning and the end, mm-hmm. was I remembered going into this being really excited about how incredible Joel Gray is as the MC. Yes. And we get to the opening number. And one, I didn't remember the stage being so crowded. I didn't remember him having no room to move around. Mm -hmm. I didn't remember it being so like uncharming and, and sort of like, like I just remembered him having this like more sinister edge to him and Mm -hmm. things like that. And then it just seemed like as the picture went on and as he built up each number on and on and on mm-hmm. and on. He just got better and better and better and better at, at doing the thing that he mm-hmm. was doing until at the end, he's saying, Alvider Zane, and I'm terrified. Mm-hmm. It does not leave you in a happy place when it ends at all. <laughs> he built up a, a head of steam throughout as the picture went on. And sure. it seemed like, it seemed like that was true for a lot of people in the movie. It seemed like everybody needed like a, like a round or two to get going with the exception of, of course, Liza Minnelli. Liza Minnelli is just a speedboat that everybody's holding on to the back of until they get their feet. Sure. I think there's some casting issues besides Liza and Joel. Mm-hmm. I think that's a that's a little bit of our issue here. And I think, you know, it's interesting. Diana had never seen Chicago on stage until a while after the movie came out. That's true. And I had. Um, I had gotten the opportunity to see it staged. Mm-hmm relatively soon i think after the movie so like 
it's a mind-blowing experience because in 2003 when you saw that movie it was very much a sort of big epic it's in a real world but it's also a little fantastical Mm -hmm. and then you see the show and it's like stark one set nothing changes Mm -hmm. it's barely scene dressed there's lights everywhere and it's it's like you're in a Brecht show all of a sudden. And that's how Fosse created stuff on stage. Mm-hmm. Then you put it in a movie. Yeah. And, he, and in this movie, he goes for realism. Well, they, he never had a big budget. No, but this is, it's off-putting. It's really weird. I, I think you're right, not only in that the actors need a head of steam, but he as a director needs a little bit of time for you to adjust to the fact that he's doing a very mm-hmm. weirdly surreal type of show stage-wise in a not very surreal type of setting. Well, he has two different worlds because the Kit Kat Club is liminal space. Yeah. Because its stage is two different stages. Mm-hmm. There is a very, very small stage that looks like the... 1931 Berlin set. And then there is a another different stage that I call in all of my notes I have it written down as the showstopper stage, which is bigger with more lights that looks like it's a 1973 stage. And these two spaces are used interchangeably with the same people and the same seating in the same venue. So the Kit Kat Club is not bound by our laws of <laughs> uh, of physics and things like that. the The stage can be any any kind of thing that we require it to be. Sure. And the rest of the world has to be the rest of the world. <laughs> it's supposed to be off putting. It's supposed to be. And so I think at the beginning you're sort of sitting there going, "I don't quite get it," but by the end you get what he's doing. He's been messing with your perception of space and where you're at at any given moment. I mean, there is a there is a point in this movie where you're like, I don't even know where I am anymore. That happened right. to me a lot where I was like, whose apartment are we in? Where is this apartment? What's going on? That happened a lot. If we yeah. weren't in the Kit Kat Club, I didn't really know where we were. Oh, yeah. I, I have I have one here where it's like. A thousand candles really changes the layout of a room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like that whole space changes utterly. Okay. So I have, I have a question. Did they film this in order? I have no idea. Okay. And did they film this on location or a soundstage? That is a good question. And I think that we should find that out. (laughs) This is all on location in Berlin. Okay. I wonder if time constraints had to do with the different size stages. Like we only have so much time here and we only have so much time there. So this is what we're going to get done in different places, which continuity matters, but also, okay, logistics. But continuity doesn't necessarily matter in a story like this. No, true. I'm just trying to like, I'm trying to figure out the process here so I can decide whether or not I hate it or I I have to figure (laughs) out if I care. Do I care? I don't think I do, but I think it's hard to know how you feel the first time watching it. Sure. Because as a movie experience, it's very different than what we're accustomed to. I will say this, the stage size, I noticed it, but it didn't matter to me when I was watching it. I'll say that. That's fair. 
but the warm up thing, I completely agree with. So that makes me wonder if they film this in order or not. Mm. I doubt that, but I, 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 it's rare that that happens. But I just wanted to ask. It is rare that that happens, but this is also Bob Fosse. Fosse, and I don't know what Fosse's process as a film director is. Mm. Yes. Well, based on the show Fosse Verdon, it's uh, rigorous, just like his Broadway ones. Lots of intensity, lots of alcoholism. Who to thunk? <laughs> no figure. All right, well, let's get into it. I think if we talk about it, if we, if we dive in, maybe we'll mm-hmm. kind of figure out what's going on here. The budget for this film was $4,600,000. That's roughly about $30,500,000 today. That's mm-hmm. not a big budget for a musical. But this is not your ordinary musical. I mean, to be fair, some of how they wrote this, like they hacked a ton of songs out of this to make it a movie. Mm-hmm. And it's almost more of a drama with music than it is a musical at the end of the day. There is a long, long stretch with no songs yeah. whatsoever. It's weird. It feels weird. The pacing gets off very quickly. There's a long stretch where the next song you hear is the Nazi one. Mm-hmm. And that's really disappointing when you go like, 40 minutes without a musical number and the next one's about the fatherland. And also I really wish that kid couldn't sing. That would have that would have made it a lot more palatable. He's but... singing this horrible song and you're like, "Damn, he's got a good voice." See, on the flip side, I love that moment, but only if you've earned it. There. It has not earned. No. And I know that if you see it with the musical where you've had all of this Yuck it up in the Kit Clack Club, mm-hmm. all these numbers, everything's super gay and super fun and fancy free. And then all of a sudden, Nazi Germany smacks you in the face. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fucking awesome on stage. Cause you're like, oh, by the way, all of this is going to go to hell in about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Like, just so you know, less time for the people who worked at the Kit Clack Club. For sure. It's not going to be good. When it's earned, that moment makes such an impact, but it doesn't in this movie. Mm -hmm. And there is a reason for that, but we don't get to that until we talk about our director. Before that, we should know that it made $42,800,000. That's close to 10 times its money. So roughly $285 million in today's money. That's pretty good. It did very, very well for itself. (laughs) Ain't nobody grumpy about that. That's uh, that's some walking around money for a movie that by today's standards is probably still a hard R. Oh, sure. They remake this. It's a hard R and it should be. It should be. I don't think this is a musical you take your kids to. Probably shouldn't be, but you people do. Sure. If I had a musical obsessed child, I would, because clearly we would have to discuss some things. <laughs> but it just does it. And this is an R movie this is a story meant for grown-ups that is its intended audience all right let's get into the writing it's kind of a saga from how this movie gets from story Mm -hmm. to musical to movie okay it starts with sort of a roving raconteur and novel writer christopher isherwood now isherwood was in berlin around this time and he wrote stories Mm-hmm. that were compiled into a book about this whole saga. 
the biggest credit that you might know him from is the movie A Single Man, the movie that starred Colin Firth and directed by the legendary fashion designer Tom Ford. Hmm. He also wrote that book, but he created this whole storyline. Then it was made into a play called I Am a Camera. That play was written by John Van Druten. That was also filmed in like the 50s, but this was turned into that play. John Van Druten also contributed to Gone with the Wind, 1940s Pride and Prejudice, wrote My Life with Caroline, Johnny Come Lately, and the movie Gaslight. So it goes from there to a musical, which is produced in 1966. Joe Masteroff wrote the book for the musical. His biggest work was on stage. Not a whole lot of other credits for him. And then you have our composers, Fred Ebb and John Kander. These two guys are big deals. They created the musicals Flora the Red Menace, Zorba, Chicago, Kiss of the Spider Woman, and Fosse, along with this. They worked with Fosse on all of his musicals. They also wrote the music for the film's Funny Lady, which we've <laughs> talked about here before, and the Martin Scorsese musical New York, New York, um, which gave us that iconic title song, Candor. Also wound up writing music for the film Places in the Heart and the television movie The Boys Next Door. I forgot about that. It's a great play. Then we have the screenplay. <laughs> so we've got to the musical now. Okay. okay. Then we make the screenplay off the musical. Fair. Jay Preston Allen, who is a Dallasite who we've talked about before. She wrote uncredited on 1976's A Star is Born. She shouldn't be proud of that. And she also wrote Funny Lady. I knew you were going to say funny lady. Yeah. Because Texas. And also, she shouldn't be proud of that. But get that money. <laughs> and then with an uncredited role, Fosse, looking at all of this script, went, mm, I want to take this story because it had gotten sort of all the way out to this crazy musical world. He wanted to rein it back in mm -hmm. and make it closer to the original stories from Isherwood. So he brings in Hugh Wheeler. Now, Hugh Wheeler is a big deal. Mm -hmm. He wrote the book for A Little Night Music and Sweeney Todd. So he worked a lot with Sondheim and wrote uh, for Bernstein's Candide. Little Night Music is Diana's favorite musical. I know. Uh, that's cool. So we'll get into why he brings this back, but they they had already made it into this giant musical stage production, mm -hmm. including Fosse. <laughs> And then he said, we're making a movie. I want to try to go back to the original. Okay. What do we think of the writing of this movie? I think that it met its source material, perhaps in passing, maybe on a train. Um, <laughs> Ages are missing. They shared a meal, perhaps, uh, but they definitely didn't connect in a deep, meaningful way. Isherwood was pretty critical of this movie. I can see why. <laughs> sure. The framework story is great. Like the base, the bones. When you get down to like, like that story is pretty good and interesting. But this movie wanders to weird places that I don't care about. And this is having not seen the musical. And I'm just look, I'm just looking at the movie. I'm going, this should really be like a workplace drama. We're like, yes, we can learn about what's going on with Sally outside of work. But I want to know more about the people at work. I want that to be where everything's happening. I mean, one or the other, right? Like, it's either that or you should have done a whole lot more taking us into the world of Weimar Berlin. 
Sure. Which they didn't do. Like no. we just go to Sally's apartment. <laughs> right. Which is a happening place. But still, it's not that interesting. But if like the only thing that you that you learn about this world is the thing that goes on in in two rooms, it's so hard to form a complete picture of the things that are going on. Like I'm watching this film with this idea of a ticking clock in my head. So this film takes place in 1931. Mm-hmm. By 1933, homosexuality will be punishable by death in Germany. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so many of the people in this film are on this desperately ticking clock. And there is something awful lurking and happening and machining its way brutally towards them. And we don't get to deal with or see or engage with it in any way. And we don't get to engage with the people involved in the scene. And we don't get like, we get half of two things and we end up with nothing. And we have two amazing characters. I'm talking mm-hmm. about the characters, the MC and Sally. They're fabulous characters. They're, they're, they're just so interesting. And Sally is ultimately so tragic and relatable at the same time. And it's just like, we barely get anything from the MC, which there's a part of me that thinks that's great because the MC's job is just to present the show and to not be a character. Um, whereas with Sally, it's just like, what you've given us is just like, we didn't go there with any of the depth. We didn't really, we just didn't. It's just like, your life sucks. They they cut out too much in the name of realism. They did. They did. They they cut out so much of this story. Again, a lot of this comes down to Fosse when we talk about directing sure. and the choices he made in terms of what he was going to do on the adaptation. But that also flows into this writing process. Like it was Fosse's choice, but it's still all a part of this writing adaptation. Sure. Because the visuals of this movie, fuck it, gorgeous amazing like we'll talk all about that but they truncated so much of the meat from this story Mm -hmm. and also i will say the 60s broadway production is noted for also not digging deep enough into those themes like a lot of what we know about cabaret digging into that comes from the sam mendez version yeah and and some of that was commercial viability how prince is not a stupid man he knows we can't market a musical like we can go we can go pretty hardcore, but we're mm-hmm. gonna have to hedge our bets somewhat. We sure. can't go completely whole into this. We've gotta be real tongue in cheek about how we talk about this stuff. Well, and also to ML's point about this tragedy that's barreling towards all these people, there's like this veil in the direction. I know we're in writing, but that is there. So like, oh, this like who cares? Like, what's the point? Cause this is all gonna be for nothing soon but i wish we had a conversation between some characters who are just like like we're just gonna live it up now because we know we won't be able to later like we know like we just know they sort of kind of almost do it and then they just exactly it's very frustrating the closest thing that we get to that stuff is conversations between people who are ultimately unaffected Mm -hmm. between people who cut and run who 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 ultimately 
never had anything to worry about sure. and end up not having anything to worry about. And they're the ones who who have the most to say on the subject. And the thing that they have to say on the subject is so mealy mouthed and cowardly. Like yeah. I'm I am glad to hear someone say it though, because it's it was really nice to hear in this period of time, like, wow, gosh, that's just it's just right there, plain as day for everybody. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All of the normal people are just sitting around looking at the extremists saying, yeah, well, I mean, they're they're useful to us. We'll use these extremists to take care of the other extremists. And then we'll just have the extremists that we like and we can deal with them. The, this movie could use with a new version and it could use with a new version that's far more incisive on those topics. Agreed. And now would be a fabulous time to do so. Oh, absolutely. This really convinced me that in a world of, you know, unnecessary remake after unnecessary mm-hmm. remake, that this probably has a uh, a really powerful, really necessary remake. Oh, sure. Inside of it. A valid remake. <laughs> uh, uh, especially with where we find ourselves right now. You know, like I, like I said, we're we are two years removed from the Institute for Sexology in Berlin that was headed by Magnus Hirschfeld is going to be raided in 1933. The first known male to female transsexual is going to be murdered in those raids. And all of the videos of the Nazis piling literature into piles and setting it on fire. It is this literature from this Institute that is destroying millions and millions and millions of pages on intersex identities, on trans identities, on queer identities. And I say with no hyperbole whatsoever, it was the equivalent. It was the queer burning of the library of Alexandria. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think that's absolutely valid. We lost more information in in this moment, and we're we're barely getting back to where we were then. Exactly. And and we're at the exact point that we were then. It's utterly terrifying. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Politically, absolutely. It's utterly <laughs> terrifying to, yes. to just be staring it down all over again. Oh, um, of course. There's there's so much cool stuff here that I just like missed opportunity, missed opportunities. So to be fair to all of them, Isherwood was missing the opportunity too. Um, Mm -hmm. Isherwood was a privileged white gay man from Britain who was just watching all of this. Mm -hmm. And then when it got too too wild, cut and ran and was living it up in Berlin. So like. Part of this is that the source material is very much just a cynical, the world is burning, but let's live it up while we have it until we just have to get out of here. Right. That is the story of Cabaret. Mm -hmm. The difference is nobody took the extra leap that eventually they would with the adaptation of this of. Also, that says something about all the characters involved in this. Yeah. And in this, they're flirting with it. They're thinking about it, but they're not quite there. That's really all it is. And and Fosse included. They're thinking of it more as an homage with also these sort of tongue-in-cheek little winks and, and nods to it. And some of that's, you know, we don't think we can sell a movie if we literally just say all that in front of everybody. But I don't know. In 72, I think you could have. I really do. It just would have gotten an X rating. Yeah. And for 
for what they paid for it, maybe you could eat an X rating. But when you think about the amount of money that they pulled in, mm-hmm. I I think that they understood the the commercial potential of the thing that they had. Yeah. When you and when you read stuff about how Prince looking at the show and like having to look at Candor and Ed being like, okay, I love this. I love what y'all are coming up with. We have to pull it back because sure. no one's going to see this. <laughs> it's too dark. Like he knew he just was like, I love what y'all are coming up with, but we can't, we can't, <laughs> I can't sell it. You know, Isherwood has talked about and people around Isherwood talked about how this movie ignored one of the biggest problems of Weimar Berlin among the other things we're talking about, which was the crushing poverty that everyone was under. Uh, Steven Spender, one of Isherwood's friends, stated that, quote, there was not a single meal or club in the movie that Christopher and I could have afforded, unquote. (laughs) Wow. The poet W.H. Auden, who was another friend of Isherwood, stated, quote, it was an awful time. Everyone was flat broke. Christopher, Steven, Gene, the Germans, everyone. Mm. So, (laughs) like, that is another thing that I know they adapted later on. If you go watch Alan Cummings' version of Money, Mm -hmm. you hear him talk, say a line about poverty Mm -hmm. and starving. They don't do it in the original. Money makes the world go round, the world go round, the world go round. Money makes the world go round. It makes the world go round. A mark, a yen, a buck, or a pound, a buck, or a pound, a buck, or a pound, is all that makes the world go round. Well, I there's some interview with Alan Cummings that I've listened to a couple of years ago where he talked about part of getting in shape for MC is him. He has to lose a lot of weight. He's like, I'm supposed to be poor. Yes. He's like, I'm a slender person, but also I'm supposed to look hungry. Yeah. And that was Germany in the 1930s. Sure. It was just massive, massive, horrible inflation. Nobody could afford food. Mm-hmm. So it's just a nightmare. Isherwood also didn't love how they treated Brian. He said, quote, Brian's homosexual tendency is treated as an indecent but comic weakness to be snickered at, like bedwetting, unquote. And then, like, completely overcome, like, oops. <laughs> uh, it's just, oh, God, when... I guess those girls weren't good fucks. <laughs> yeah, like, she's like, it just took the right woman. It's just like, this, this makes and my see, heart he, And he gets such a killer line before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he really... Appreciates a woman. Screw uh, Maximilian. I do. <sighs> so do I. Oh, <laughs> and you're like, it's incredible. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, some shit's about to go down. And, you know, <clears throat> like I said, they. It's frustrating because they're pulling punches and they do it a lot in this movie. And I think what's really frustrating is that they do it at times where I don't even think they needed to. There are probably some moments where you couldn't get around it. We know that 
all throughout even the 70s and the 80s there was the mm-hmm. whole thing that you have to code a gay character as somehow having to find some redemption out of that into straightness or otherwise it was just unpardonable mm-hmm. from the MPAA but there's certain times where they pulled punches where it's like no why why did you bother yeah and i think that's what's really annoying is like there the moments that they did it it wasn't always that feeling of okay i get why you did that mm-hmm. sometimes it was just like huh I don't understand. And I think that it's just uneven in that way. Which is why a remake is necessary. (laughs) Uh, Sally Bowles is based off of a real woman. Her name was Jean Ross. She was never a fan of Isherwood's portrayal of her to begin with. In his story, she was apolitical and anti-Semitic, which was completely untrue. (laughs) She was a member of the Communist Party and worked as a correspondent during the Spanish Civil War. I'd be pissed too. (laughs) Yeah. She left Berlin and went to fight the fucking fascists. Like I would, I would have a bone to pick with Escherwood too. Please tell me she sued. Her partner, Claude Cockburn, who actually is Olivia Wilde's grandfather. So if you want to draw some connections to modern day, he described Jean Ross as a gentle, cultivated, and very beautiful woman, not a bit like the vulgar vamp displayed by Liza Minnelli. Unquote. <laughs> What an awesome, what an awesome way to describe her. By the time we get to this story, Sally Bowles is far more of an archetype. I love the idea of Sally Bowles. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's based off of this really bad reportrayal of somebody who, at its base core, what Isherwood was getting across in the story was she's somebody who has money. She came here to act. She really can't, but now she's just become the social life of Berlin. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing that through this vain person's eyes, which is like, okay, fine. That's a pretty okay story to tell. But the fact that he took that to like the ridiculous lengths he did and threw her under the bus calling her apolitical when it was like, um, nothing about her life story would indicate that, my man. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> why even why even then go around telling people that it's based on a real person then? Why not just say I made up a person? I think it's too many people dug into it then because mm-hmm. the story got retold. So, no, and you know, he, here's the thing. He didn't like the, the adaptation of this movie, but he was certainly happy about the paychecks because he was getting residuals. Well, I mean, look, you can, you can only be so mad, but everyone, including me, has a price. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Fair. Jean, however, was hounded by journalists throughout the movie. She lamented that reporters always wanted to ask her about Berlin in the 30s, but never, quote, about the unemployment or the poverty or the Nazis marching through the streets. All they wanted to know is how many men I went to bed with, unquote. She passed away the next year in 1973 after being dogged by reporters after this movie. That's sad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is where I'm starting to go, nah, fuck you, Isherwood. Fuck you. That's... That's grim stuff. <laughs> Not good. No. I don't like it. No, I don't. Now, I will give some credit here to Candor and because, okay. I mean, the music is good. It's really fucking good. Uh, yeah. It's some catchy shit. It, this, this is the musical that probably has the most, like, hooks that stick in your brain. Well, okay, let's be very clear. We just got done talking about Fiddler on the Roof. Like... Okay, you and I are... That's just our marriage the movie that we just yell at each other from but now still on. but still the hooks of that the hooks of that music are undeniably good 
I have not stopped yelling, eat your soup, but David. And I have not stopped yelling, I am the papa, so. Yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> Regardless. <laughs> Candor Neb. Money, money is an all-time banger. Like, it's an incredible track. Money's amazing. Vilkoman. Vilkoman. An, incredi- an incredible opener, as all of my friends in wrestling like to call it, the real main event, the opener. Just unbelievable. It's great. And the song that is incredibly hard to talk about, but boy, it still makes an impact, the Gorilla song. Yeah. We don't like it, but it is a good song, and it serves a purpose. It's one of the toughest songs to talk about in musical theater because it's a song that it was like, in every way, this is bad. And it's also perfect for this show. Yeah. And it has to stay. It's The context matters. It does. It works so well for the mm-hmm. show. But they did make a few changes in terms of actual new music. They needed a new ballad because of the sort of realistic style they were going for. Mm-hmm. Rather than write a new song... Manelli convinced them to try out Maybe This Time, a song she had recorded for her first album and performed at the London Palladium while appearing with her mother while she was touring. Mm-hmm. Mm. Candor and Ebb thought it was a great idea. Fosse didn't really like it at first, mm-hmm. but after they staged it in an empty nightclub, he went, oh yeah, nope, this works. This fucking works. It sells her and it's, it's become the one of the iconic songs. Maybe this time I'll be lucky Maybe this time he'll stay Maybe this time For the first time Love won't hurry away It's been added to the show yes. going forward yeah. because of just how good it fits. But Ebb jokingly blamed her for losing an extra Oscar nomination because they didn't get to write another original song and get nominated for the Oscar. <laughs> you know what? I wouldn't feel guilty. <laughs> Fosse apparently did that too. They were both, I mean, they were both joking with her because they both loved Liza, but sure. right. it was just like, damn it. We could have gotten another Oscar nod. Come on. Now, let's talk about that little Nazi anthem, Tomorrow Belongs to Me. It was written specifically in the style of German folk songs. Mm -hmm. It is mistaken for a Nazi anthem, led to charges of anti-Semitism at the time of the Broadway show, which is ironic because both Kander and Ebb are Jewish. The context really matters for it because it is the only song performed outside of the Kit Kat Club. Yeah. That's true. I do like that. and. You know, I had previously said I really wish this had been more of a workplace drama. I also feel like I didn't want to leave the Kit Kat Club. Like if Sally lives above the Kit Kat Club, fine, but we're still there. All that's fine with me. But I wanted to stay there because that's where the songs are. That's where everything is happening. I mean, if I recall, in terms of the staging of the show, mm-hmm. it it's done that way where yeah. you are like in the Kit Kat Club. Because it's genius perfect and this song specifically is outside which i love that the one time we go outside oh this is horrific we don't like it let's go back inside yeah the other really clever thing that they do with it they're very cagey about invoking like 
the absolute propaganda of the Nazi regime because Nazi songs were like full on fucking Nazi songs. They weren't subtle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They wrote this song very subtle because it's all about fatherland, but never about, you know, the real hardcore stuff. Candor and Ebb are doing a masterful job of the balance in terms of writing the music. The balance is completely on par. It's just that, you know, the imagery doesn't always match up for this movie version. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I can agree with that. To this day, the actual singer of the song is a little bit of speculation. You know, Fosse wrote in a book that he knows it was this one, this longtime Broadway actor, and that's typically who gets the credit for singing. However, that actor refused to bleach his hair blonde for the role to be in the movie. So he sang it, and they had an extra stand-in with the blonde hair. Are you telling me that there was an actor who refused a film credit because he wouldn't bleach his hair? Girl! Might have been in another thing. We don't know. They were like, we really like you. And he's like, yeah, but I got this other thing and I can't do it. I so can't. like That paid better than a Bob Fosse movie? Maybe. I don't know. Girl. Maybe it's like, I don't want to go overseas for this. No, thank you. Okay, good. but paid better than Bob Fosse's first movie. All right. I Let's guess. be clear here. All right. I'll buy it. Bob Fosse on Broadway? Legend. Bob Fosse in Hollywood? We don't know who you are. <laughs> That's fair. Okay, fair play. Untested. Okay, I will say second movie. Second movie. Um, we'll get there. And a fun little note. When Brian is surprised that Sally is American, that's actually a little joke on the stage version. The, in the original, Sally is British in the Isherwood stories. And Clint is the main character, not Brian, who is an American. Hmm. So they flip it around for the movie. Just a, just a fun joke they wrote in. All right, let's talk about the choreographer-dancer dude, the curmudgeon himself, our director, Bob Fosse. He created and directed Chicago and Pippin. He was the choreographer for the films Kiss Me Kate, My Sister Eileen, The Pajama Game, and Damn Yankees. And directing-wise, before this, he made Sweet Charity. And after this, he made Lenny, All That Jazz, and Star 80. What do we think of Bob Fosse's direction of this movie? Bob Fosse does something with set decoration that I really appreciate in a stage director, mm-hmm. but I don't know how much I appreciate it in a film director. Oh, I love when people strip back spectacle from stage stuff. Mm-hmm. And as a stage director... Bob Fosse did a really, really excellent job of putting on productions that are like 15 people, six shadow boxes, and mm-hmm. uh, just go. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much I love that for a film. When it's their own stage productions, mm-hmm. I like it. But like sometimes sets have stuff in them (laughs) sure like like even if your even if your nightclub theater doesn't have a lot of properties and things in it a working functional theater has a lot of stuff that goes on and exists back there even if your sets are all just like painted backdrops that we roll up in a bunch of of chairs and things mm-hmm. like there's still like a bunch of things and stuff and and stuff to look at going on 
around there and it was all just like nothing like a lot of nothing everywhere (laughs) he tried to do that with editing especially well i mean the musical sequences are what sell the movie absolutely absolutely and i i know that i'm sort of complaining about like the the stuff that i like is all the best stuff about uh, a movie adaptation of a musical like it's the part where they do the musical (laughs) (laughs) sure that's why we that's why we're here but the balance is so off like already it is yeah the thing that he is so amazing at is is moving bodies around a stage right he's he's, he does it in an interesting way in a way that tells the story and you you see that so much in the musical numbers when liza's singing her song and those girls have their legs in the air their legs not just in the air their feet are doing things their arms are doing things like a lot is happening so every single person you look at in that frame is doing something and it's interesting the problem is when we're not singing or dancing there's no business and there's no stuff to create business you need mm-hmm. act when especially when you have just actors in a room talking they need shit to do they need to be making coffee they need to go use the bathroom they need to put their makeup on in the bathroom they need to unclog the toilet they need the business and he took away all the opportunities for business yeah <laughs> when he's got three or more people in a scene Mm-hmm. He manages to block it and make it look good. Sure. That whole trio scene with the triangle and all the whatever's going on. It was acting, directing 101. It's great. It's beautiful. I've been, I've been watching a lot of media with thruples in it. And it's really <laughs> starting to upset my partner. <laughs> Subliminal messaging here. <laughs> but like being a theater major, there's a whole thing about triangles. The most dynamic thing you can do, the, everything is about angles and triangles. And how are you forming that? even if you've got two people, but in the two-person scenes, they're all so flat. Mm-hmm. Right. You would expect like, a master of directing to be able to pull something off of that a little bit better. That's the thing, though. I don't know that he's a master of directing. No. Of stage direction, sure. Film direction, eh, he did a good job because the film, like, we have to give him a pass because he accomplished his goal and it doesn't, the direction doesn't suck but it's not dynamic when they're not singing and dancing it's just not well and there's like there's a handful of shots uh more more than a handful of shots yeah and some of them are not when they're singing and dancing Mm -hmm. where he uses the camera and human bodies to make a picture Mm -hmm. that is breathtaking Mm -hmm. it's incredibly stunning and then there are shots that just look like dog shit. I want, is this your first day, dude? <laughs> yeah. There, there's, there's stuff that just look that just look bad. They look real bad. It's very 70s, too. And some of that's the editing. Uh, it's very 70s editing. She it's very did. lingering more than we ever really needed to. Everybody's trying to pull off the graduate. And it was mm-hmm. like, y'all rein it in. Pick up the tempo. If we're going to cut out a bunch of these songs, then you better move a lot faster. This movie was an hour and a half. I would probably have no complaints because we cut out so much music from it. Mm -hmm. And like you said, if it's all about a ticking clock, this movie needs to feel like it's going faster and faster and faster until we run into a wall. And they kind of finally do it right near the end. (laughs) Yeah. But it takes a long time before they ever get to that point. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. 
I have not seen all that jazz. I have seen Lenny, which is a, a weird thing for Bob Fosse to do because it's a complete traumatic thing. It's not a musical. Mm-hmm. It's Dustin Hoffman as Lenny Bruce. And it's like a really gritty black and white, eventually dark and sad retelling of Lenny Bruce's life. It's magnificent. It looks gorgeous. And Dustin Hoffman's doing what he does really well. I, this kind of feels like there's a lot of it is that it is his first day in a lot of ways. Who was the director of photography on this? Because I feel like the studio might not have done Mr. Fosse a lot of favors. I don't think they did. I mean, that's that's a huge part of this. <laughs> but it's Jeffrey Unsworth, who also was a cinematographer for 2001 A Space Odyssey and the original Superman. <laughs> Never mind. It's Bob. <laughs> it's Bob. Yeah. Murder on the Orient Express. Bridge Too Far. Yep. Yeah, this is Bob's fault. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. So now, so now, maybe, maybe I shouldn't praise Bob for all the times that I thought things looked good. <laughs> I do think he's just he's figuring stuff out. Like at some point, we're gonna see all that jazz because it's also such a big honking deal. Yeah, and I think that's really his like scare quotes masterpiece. That's the one where he's got everything and all the creative juices, and he's also like. It's all him. It's all his story. <laughs> mm-hmm. A lot of this is he's hamstrung by the adaptation that they built up. Like yeah. we've already talked about our problems with the writing. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that then is that a lot of the scenes in the writing and the decisions that they made cut out a whole bunch of stuff where it makes the scenes flat mm-hmm. just in terms of what's there. And if that's flat, then he doesn't quite know how to do it until we get to the next thing. So then it's flat from his directing and it just kind of snowballs from there. But there is one thing is that Bob Fosse was interested in getting out of musicals and he lobbied to truncate the music from Cabaret for this film. And so he made the decision and you hear it throughout the movie that in the background you keep hearing songs getting played on the record player. Those are all songs from the musical. Are those all the cut songs? Don't Tell Mama, It Couldn't Please Me More, Married, Sitting Pretty, and So What mm-hmm. are all used as the background music being played throughout the scenes of the movie. I don't hate it. Well, you don't hate it, except that those it's a are... fine choice as long as you can notice it. Those are good songs that got cut and that I don't think they should have. And yeah, you, I could, I could hear a little bit. I was like, that sounds familiar, but that's, I mean, it's common. You know, there's a reprise somewhere in the score well you just you just sort of go if this whole the fucking things about her at the kit kat club why the fuck is she isn't she doing more at the kit kat club <laughs> you're supposed to be like a big deal and if it's about something else then maybe she should do literally something just do a thing and and i like michael york as an actor but he should have been singing why is he not singing <laughs> i like him as an actor he is Asher Fleming from the Gilmore Girls. <laughs> but that's all I see. Like, there's no, there's no, I know, but there, it's just, there's too, it's I know it, not good. It's not good. It's a bad choice It is for Cabaret. It's not a bad choice for a musical. It's a bad choice for this musical. Mm-hmm. Michael York is, he's a guy who, when I see his face, no matter what year the film was made, mm-hmm. I feel like it's the 1970s. 
Yeah, that's. I fun. agree because his face really doesn't change. Well, he he hasn't aged, <laughs> and so no matter when a film is set, immediately when I look at him, I feel like it's the 1970s. And no matter what he's wearing, I feel like it's the 1970s. Well, also, all of the lighting in this movie is so 70s. He made the choice to have it look gauzy, which I think Mm -hmm. was a big mistake. I think the look of this movie should have been way more saturated and stark. Lots more contrast than what we get. Mm -hmm. I mean, the color is amazing, but it's like, this is way too kind of muted and musically for what this story is you're telling my man (laughs) there are these choices that are being made in this film these dreamlike things that are being done yep but there's no payoff for them Uh -uh. no what is happening here is there some like deleted scene cutting room floor sequence where someone is telling this story like is there something that got cut from this movie that makes the way that it's made make more sense there's one idea that this might be it and and i don't know the original camera negative has been missing since its original run all of the restoration of this movie has been done frame by frame they can't find an original print I almost wonder if the version we're seeing now is not the version that people saw in 72. Hmm. Not in terms of content, but in terms of look. Interesting. And if that sort of use of color and use of lighting and different things made a lot more sense when it first ran. Hmm. I don't know. That is probably the only possibility on that end. Otherwise, it's just that in 1972, people were like completely blown away we've had this happen with a couple of our movies where it's like people were completely blown away by this in this moment and now it's just like it doesn't have the same impact anymore yeah Hmm. there's just there's it feels it feels like there's like some kind of like there's some kind of rosetta stone about this movie it's not here yeah and it's really it's really driving me up a wall (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's just something that as soon as I crack it, as soon as I figure it out, I'm going to like it a lot more than I do. I don't know. know. Hmm. One other fun note. Much of the filming occurred on sound stages. It was on sound stages, but it was in Berlin. So I think they were they were doing probably the Kit Kat Club in a stage because that's the easiest way you're going to do that. But then you could use the exterior Berlin so that you could get all that that feel of Germany. But it was using stages on the recently wrapped Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Really? Fun times. Yeah. yeah that film hmm. in Germany. So, hey. I knew that. Oh, you knew that. I knew that one. All right. How about some who could have been betters? Because yes. there were other people in talks to direct this movie. Okay. How about Billy Wilder, director of The Apartment? I love The Apartment so much. That's the best movie David has ever made me watch is The Apartment. And like um, a million other things. But we, we mentioned him for The Apartment here. I'm, I'm sitting here kind of like blown away. Like, wow, that that would be a thing. Billy Wilder's really great at cynical comedy. Yes. Mm-hmm. And now let's layer in the drama. He would have found all the moments to be like, hey, by the way, because also escaped from Germany. During that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he understood that as well as anybody. He made Stalag 17. Yeah. But, like, he'll be over there just in the f- background being like, 
Hey, by the way, the Nazis are right over here, just so you know. Oof. That's a it's a sneaky good choice. It is. I like and he was it. and he was in talks to direct that film. Wow. I mean, he was mentioned. I don't know. I he could have been, you know, approached, and he was like, "No, absolutely not. <laughs> Under no circumstances." Right. I'm not touching Thank this. You. Uh, how about somebody we talked about for Guys and Dolls? Joseph L. Mankiewicz was a name rumored for this. Wrong tone. He's a he's much more of a big epic production kind of director. Yep. And finally, how about our main man Gene Kelly? Get it. Yes! <laughs> yes! Always Gene Kelly! Yes! Yeah. Anything that gets him another paycheck. Whatever. I don't care. He did an amazing job with Hello Dolly. I think Liza probably would have been like, absolutely fucking not. <laughs> <laughs> if Gene Kelly if Gene Kelly walks through this door, I'll claw his eyes out. Let's be clear. It was Gene Kelly going, I ain't hiring that bitch. <laughs> You know that's how that conversation would have gone. If Eliza Minnelli walks through this door, I'll claw her eyes out. <laughs> I'm the biggest diva here. That's it. I like Gene Kelly, but like, I don't know. This is not his lane. Remember we talked about, this we, we noticed 70s. this was an American in Paris where we figured out the sort of really deep, horrible truth of Gene Kelly can't act sad. He can, he, he can dance sad, but he cannot he act can sad. sad. He yes. can he cannot act his emotions outside of charming, and we went, oh shit! There's like five biographies we need to read to figure this one out. Like this is deep yeah. shit we're we're tapping into. Figured it out. I unlocked Gene Kelly. He cannot express his emotions creatively without dancing, and it's like, well, which he does beautifully. Here's the thing. Fosse was going to be a part of this no matter, no matter what. what. Of course. Because he would have been choreographing mm-hmm. if he wasn't also directing. Right. And like he pushed to also direct this because he was like, I want to make a change. I want to I want to get out of this arena and push into something new creatively. See, I think Gene Kelly would have been perfect because he's such a dancer and a choreographing director to be working with Bob Fosse. I now those two would have fought like nothing else. This movie wouldn't have gotten made. No, what it would have been, it would have cost fifteen million dollars, not four. That's just a fact because Gene Kelly would have said, "We're gonna have some shit on stage." <laughs> I think the sneaky good choice here is Billy Wilder and Bob Fosse. I think you get the guy who gets the tone, who gets the moment, and is like, "Let me take care." Of the drama uh-huh. and the side scenes. Yeah. And you do what you're so great at. You tell the story with the dance. I'll tell the story with the rest. And I'll offer my suggestions to you along the way. Billy Wilder would have been great. It's great because it's going to help massage Fosse's ego in the most productive way possible. Sure. And it's going to be good for the production overall. That's the healthiest choice. <laughs> And he'd be learning from a master director whose movies and tone fit a lot of what Fosse does. Sure. Yeah. And what Fosse would then go on to do. Yeah. But I want Gene Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) That's my choice. I want to see those two fights. It's the wrong goddamn (laughs) choice. (laughs) My heart also wants there to be two dead bodies in Berlin. (laughs) (laughs) No, because I want this movie to be amazing. (laughs) 
And that would just, again, if you have Gene and Bob Fosse, that movie just doesn't happen. They both murder each other or the production gets shut down. It never happens. Gene Kelly could work with Barbara. It'd be okay. Uh, <laughs> barely. I'll, I'll accept a Lost in La Mancha documentary. Yes. All right. Let's talk about our cast and the movie that didn't break this woman, but did make her a movie star. It's Liza Minnelli playing Sally Bowles. Of course, she is a daughter of Judy Garland. She made her debut on Broadway in Candor and Ebb's Flora the Red Menace. She really stuck to stage. And then, you know, later on in her career has really done more singing than acting. Um, her credits, you know, if you go look them up, are not that much, but she's just performed her whole life. Mm -hmm. Before this, she did Charlie Bubbles, The Sterile Cuckoo, and Tell Me That You Love Me, Junie Moon. After this, Lucky Lady, Silent Movie as herself, New York, New York, Arthur in 1981, gets a credit for The King of Comedy, Arthur 2 on the rocks, stepping out, and then Arrested Development on television and a cameo as herself in Sex and the City 2. What do we think of Liza Minnelli in this movie? She's so much like her mom in this movie. So much like her mom, but better? Um, for the role, maybe. For the role. Judy couldn't have done this. She's a powerhouse in every conceivable way in this. I mean, her, her, mm -hmm. voice, is, her voice is outstanding. I don't have any complaints about the way that she sounds. I know some people who aren't huge fans of Liza Minnelli's voice. I will never be counted among those people. Um, <laughs> I get it. It's so specific that I can understand that it's going to bother some people, just like Judy Garland would bother some people. I, I think that she sounds incredible. And oh, yeah. I think that she, the way that she plays it in this is so... She, just, she plays an absolute blinder. She's mm -hmm. so subtle and restrained in parts and so manic and dynamic and driving in other parts it's just it's really incredible to watch mm -hmm. well i think too she's she's so dynamic when the stakes are low mm -hmm. and she's so subtle when the stakes are high yeah. that moment right at the end before she gets the showstopper mm -hmm. when she's got to reveal to brian the decision she's made mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she plays it so low-key of just like I'm just exhausted. Will you please go? Please just hate me and go away so I don't even have to think about it. I'm just tired. Yeah. <laughs> and it's perfect. And it's, it, you know, it matches so perfectly with all of the, everything's crazy and wonderful and, you know, who cares about anything, you know? Yeah. yeah. It is. It is magnificent. And I think that's the true talent of what she's got is, is her ability to catch that. And also the thing that she has that her mother didn't have because of just, you know, the the different times of Hollywood is Liza's hip to what's going on. <laughs> right. Judy could never get the sort of wink and and nudge the camera a little mm -hmm. bit of like, look at how dirty this might be. Mm -hmm. And and ever get like deep into it. And Liza totally got that chance. Mm -hmm. Like no there were no illusions for Liza Minnelli. <laughs> so there's no there's no question about whether or not, you know, Judy Garland was nice to be around and whether or not she was a good person or anything like that. <laughs> sure. But I think that it's up for debate about how cool, quote unquote, cool Judy Garland is as a person. Yeah. And I think Liza Minnelli, whether or not Liza Minnelli is cool, 
Eliza Minnelli has hung out with cool people. And because of that, Liza Minnelli is able to play Sally Bowles mm-hmm. as whatever quote unquote cool is. Mm-hmm. She she is able to be this like this weird hapless drifter in a way that is not depressing to watch. That is like aspirational, and you're like, yeah, hell yeah, that's that rules. <laughs> she plays that shiny star very well. That course people are going to be attracted to but oh there's damage there i'm attracted to you not that much (laughs) yeah which is the problem for her the character not well yeah (laughs) well and she's also not ignorant and without agency Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. she knows what the fuck is going on it's not like she's stupid to what's going on she just at certain times is willfully ignoring what's going on she has a whole song about the fact that, like, I know what's happening. Maybe this time it will be different. Mm-hmm. That's what's so fun about, about this role for her. And she's fantastic. She is. She's fabulous. Now, Isherwood, being pain in Isherwood. the ass that he is, thought Manelli was wrong for the story because of how talented she was. Mm-hmm. I think she's right for the musical, but I get his point. Gene Ross was an amateur actor. And in his interpretation of the story, she was under the delusion that she was a star, Mm -hmm. but she was not good at all. Yeah. So in other words, he thought Sally Bowles should have been the opposite of Judy Garland's daughter. I've heard that too. And I, in a different adaptation, that plays. Like that could totally play. In this one, if she can't sing, why am I watching this movie? Yeah, somebody still has to sing all these fucking songs, dude. (laughs) Like someone still has to perform all these all these songs uh, for this record that you're going to sell. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want the person who's going to sing on that record to be bad? I no. guess I don't under I guess I don't understand the motivation fully. I understand the like, do you want to be accurate or do you want to be good? <laughs> that's a good point. I really like that's so succinct. Do you want to be accurate or do you want to be good? Uh. I want that on a bumper sticker. Yeah. Would you would you rather be correct or good? <laughs> I want both, damn it. <laughs> the whole point of this is that Sally is the star, and then the musical's job all around Sally is to remind you of how much not a star Sally is. It's the suspension of disbelief. Yes. It's a suspension of disbelief, and then also all of the outside elements coming back in as well to be like, by the way, she's shit. You're seeing something amazing, but that's all in her head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. All of this is bullshit. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole point. <laughs> it exists within the, once again, within the, the liminal dream space of the Kit Kat Club. Yes. How, how much of what occurs within the Kit Kat Club is real? We have no idea. <laughs> how many of these people are actually there? There's, there's more and more threads for this, this other movie that, that I did not watch, by the way. I know. I because know. it didn't get made. <laughs> We're trying to manifest it. We need to remake it. <laughs> but it's a movie that I'm thinking about. <laughs> I know. Liza did try to do a lot of homework. She put personal ads in the papers trying to track down Sally Bowles. Aww. Of course, she didn't know <laughs> that her name that, wasn't Sally Bowles and that it was Gene Ross. But she did. She spent a lot of time trying to actually go talk to her. That's endearing. <laughs> it's okay, Grandma. And she designed her own hair and makeup with the help of her incredibly famous director father Vincente Manelli 
she thought, well, okay, it's Berlin, it's the 1930s, so I should do Marlena Dietrich, right? And Manelli mm-hmm. went, uh-uh, no, 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 no. She's out of touch. She's an American, and she's coming in. She needs to look like a flapper. Mm-hmm. So he told her to look at Louise Brooks and Colleen Moore, and that dated her. She went for jazz age fashion mm-hmm. that dated her in this new postmodern Berlin that made her look more naive. So yeah, she she got the exact right advice on that look. It's it's a very 1920s look that feels correctly out of place in 1930s. I mean, Berlin. it's iconic. It's it's when you think of Sally Bowles, you think of that haircut mm-hmm. from this movie. Yes, you yeah. do. Mm-hmm. Now, who could have been better? There were a lot of names. Interesting. I'm very curious. Ursula Andress from Dr. No. Can't sing. Have to dub her. Probably with Liza Minnelli. Julie Andrews. Oh, what? God, no. <laughs> I, love, I love Dame Julie Andrews with all of my heart. God, no. Oh, really? Mm-mm. Mm. Julie Andrews could do it because Julie Andrews can do anything. She can do everything, but no, I don't want her in this movie. I don't want her to be treated poorly by Bob Fosse. <laughs> well, he loved Liza, so that wasn't a problem. She was still treated poorly, you know it. And Margaret. I get it. I'm mm. uh I'm I'm giving a lot of kombucha girl face to that. <laughs> I I I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> Faye Dunaway. That's very interesting. 70s, I get it. I get it. Here's a better version of that. Jane Fonda. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, it is the 70s. It's the set. It's Faye Dunaway or Jane Fonda. <laughs> where where one is listed, the other one is. I know. But I'm gonna be very clear. Jane Fonda's the better option. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you were going to, you know, not go with a singer and go with an actor, Jane Fonda. Good choice. Yeah, for real. Shirley MacLaine. <sighs> wow. Okay. Little too old at this point, maybe? I'm not saying that is a bad thing. I'm just saying at the apartment, she was at the right age for this role. So we're 12 years later. Again, it depends on your adaptation because Sally Bowles can be older. That's fair. If you were going to make that choice. Like today, if you made it and you made her like mid 40s, it's a diff- there's a different level of tragedy to her. Yeah. And I'm fine with that. It just depends. It depends on what you're doing. You got to make some choices. I think that I like the way that someone older and a little more washed up alters that story. Mm -hmm. Especially if she has an amazing voice. Because then not only is this all in her head, but she also still hasn't made it out. And, you know, Shirley, we also believe Shirley MacLaine could do no wrong. (laughs) All hail Shirley McLean. It's true. We love you, Weezer. <laughs> How about Barbara Streisand? No! <laughs> Ruins everything. No Barbara? No Barbara. No we Barbara. We were so mad at her. Yeah, we we're are. so mad at her. Natalie Wood. No. Well. Oh, mm, mm, mm. I mean. Natalie Wood can sing her ass off. She can. Not as good as Liza Minnelli, but she can sing. And she can fucking act. Again, West Side Story is a big other thing that we've already talked about. I need to see her in a musical where she's not pretending to be Puerto Rican. Exactly. That's part of the problem. I know. Well, no, that's a big part of the problem. It's it's a huge part of that problem. (sighs) Okay, okay, I'll put her in the maybe. And she has the right look. 
She yeah. really she does. does. She does. You put her in that Sally Bowles outfit and get up. I believe it. Natalie Wood could pull this off really well. <laughs> okay. And you never really get to see Natalie Wood in a role that's more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like predatory. Like mm-hmm. uh, like Sally Bowles is more on the prowl, so sure. to speak, than any of the the Natalie Wood characters that you've seen. Natalie Wood has has had roles like that where she, where she's been assertive and where she's had agency with characters. I've seen like a handful of scenes of a movie called Inside Daisy Clover, which she did in the mid to late 60s, mm-hmm. uh, where she's playing Officer Christopher Guest. And it's very much like a, a kind of star is born story, but she's got no illusions about what's going on because she's a stagehand. Mm. She can do it. She's got that sort of inner strength within her as an actress. Mm-hmm. You only ever got flashes of it because they always put her in that sort of ingenue role. Right. Mm-hmm. Lots of names, lots of possibilities, but you know, it's fucking Liza. Liza. <laughs> yeah. Liza. All right. Let's talk about somebody we're pretty sure is miscast here. It's Michael York playing Brian Roberts. Before this, he was in 1967's Taming of the Shrew, the 1968 Zeffirelli production of Romeo and Juliet, and lots of little smaller things because he's a staged British actor. After this, he's in Lost Horizon, The Three Musketeers, 1973, The Four Musketeers, Milady's Revenge, the next year, Murder on the Orient Express, the 74 version, Logan's Run, Jesus of Nazareth on television, he played John the Baptist, The Return of the Musketeers, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery, he is Basil Exposition, 54, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, The Omega Code, Austin Powers and Goldmember, and he played... Asher Fleming on Gilmore Girls. We've already gotten into Michael York a bit, but I just don't know. I don't know if Fosse didn't know how to get the right performance out of him Mm -hmm. or if he's just the wrong guy. Because like in The Three Musketeers, he was Mm D'Artagnan. In Logan's Run, he's your bright-eyed, bushy-tailed lead who's coming to understand that everything around him is a lie. He's a leading actor. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the wrong role for him. And he just like, he seems like some kind of man out of time. Yeah. There's nothing magnetic about him in this film. So other than just being somebody to talk to, I don't understand why Sally hangs out with him. Yeah. Like, I get it. I understand what they're telling me. But him as an actor in this movie like he's not overwhelmingly handsome and he doesn't seem to enjoy living there. And like when, even when he, like the one time he's at the Kit Kat club, he's not having a good time. So it's like, why are you here? He's, <laughs> he sticks out like such a terrible sore thumb. He's like, he's like sipping his, from his big giant goblet. He looks like a baby holding it with two hands. Like I'm having a really swell time. Which could have been fine for the first time we see him, but then we should have seen him there again later, where it's just like, I own this joint practically. I live here. Like, and that would have been great to see, but I don't think that's in Michael York. He just always seemed like too much of a loser for Sally. <laughs> yes. A curmudgeon. He does. A bookworm. A nerd. He he doesn't have enough. Like, like, I don't want to be like, he's a soulless husk. But like, there is that element of like, you look there and you're like, I'm seeing nothing. I'm not seeing anything 
you know, ticking in your brain. What's going on? What are you thinking? Like, it's it's like you look in and you go, I'm returning nothing out of this. And he's just mm-hmm. hitting every actor beat he's supposed to hit in the moment, which, you know, that's pretty impressive if you're not connecting with the character, but you're still hitting the notes you're supposed to hit. Well, it's not bad. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't give us a whole lot compared to what Liza fucking Manelli is giving us. He's he's not a tweed void, but he's like he's he's behind a powerboat shaped like Liza Manelli. <laughs> and just getting dragged. And he's holding on for dear life. When I give you these who could have been better, so you're gonna be so mad that they didn't cast one of these other dudes. Cause... Okay, I'm, I'm ready for my rage. I love Michael York. He's very good at what he does. As Basil Exposition, he's one of the funniest fucking things ever because he's perfect for that kind of role. Sure, but that wasn't necessary for this movie. Who could have been better? Fresh off maybe one of his biggest movies ever, Malcolm McDowell. Wow. (laughs) Yep. Yep. He would have been better. Talk about somebody who is charismatic and dangerous. Yes. He's so good with the chaotic energy, which would have been so amazing next to Liza. (sighs) Yes, I'm angry now. Thank you. That one's already. That one's already good. How about Timothy Dalton? No. Hot. Super hot. Smoldering hot. hot. (laughs) Super hot. Especially in 1972. I I would take Timothy Dalton. I mean, here's the thing. Timothy Dalton unproven because we the only thing we've really seen him as is James Bond. And it's like, he's a Shakespearean stage actor. He can do a whole I've lot I've seen more. Beautician and the Beast. I've seen Hot Fuzz. So, you know. <laughs> I've seen that too, but I forget he's in it because sometimes <laughs> I forget his face. <laughs> oh, and we've all seen Toy Story. Back. Toy Story 3. He's the bear. He's yeah. the hedgehog. He's the actor the hedgehog. acting hedgehog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's magnificent. Hey, hello. Hi. Excuse me. Can you tell me where I am? The guy's just asking a question. Well, excuse me. I'm trying to stay in character. My name's Butter. How about Jeremy Irons? Oh, yeah. Come on, Jeremy <laughs> Irons. Get in. Yeah. A man who should probably not talk anymore because he said some real problematic shit. He's in some time out. Yeah. yeah agreed. But, uh, goddamn. Okay. Sinister, sinister man. Okay. Tim Curry. Are you shut the front door? <sighs> okay. <laughs> we might get into a diva diva situation. So it was it was Michael York, and they had the well, they couldn't because well, Malcolm McDowell was the correct choice against Liza Minnelli. I think he's the best choice against Man- Eliza Minnelli. Yes, because Tim Curry is amazing. Probably. Tim Curry would be a great MC. Oh, sure. But that's too much. It's too it's too close to Rocky Horror, which is fine. Yeah, no, no, no. It's it's Malcolm McDowell all the way. I mean, especially after we've seen Clockwork Orange on this show and everything he does with that role and the nuance that he put into it that wasn't sure. being given to him by Stanley Kubrick. And now you've got somebody who's actually looking for that shit. Mm-hmm. Oh, Malcolm McDowell would not be a wet blanket all over what Liza Minnelli is giving. Though I do think Jeremy Irons would be a better choice playing it as it's written in this current film. That's true. That's true. Jeremy Irons would do the much improved version of what Michael York is giving. Correct. He he would be oh he would be much more magnetic. Mm-hmm. Because I mean he is literally magnetic. He is. My God. <laughs> David. 
I know. I know. What could really, have been? Really? What? Those are some. Uh, those are some good ones. Your punniness. I what? You said he was mag. He's literally magnetic. Oh yes, you did. I didn't even know I made you that pun. Wow, that's amazing. I'm embarrassed for you. <laughs> I'm I'm embarrassed for me too. All right, let's talk about somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of credits that we can really talk about mm-hmm. because he's a German actor, and there's a lot of German actors in this movie. Fair. <laughs> but it's Helmut Green playing Maximilian von Hoyne. He got some notable American films. He was in The Damned, Ludwig, Voyage of the Damned, and The Plot to Kill Hitler, uh, among some more notable things. Mm-hmm. But he is mostly a just straight-up German actor. What do we think of Helmut Green playing Max in this movie for the time we get him? It's very brief. Mm-hmm. I like what we have of him, but it's such a small sample size. There's so little there to, to really sink into. And I think that he does exactly what he's supposed to do with what he's been given. <laughs> so uh, I can't really fault him for any of that. I wish he was maybe given a little bit more. What he does give us is a, a nice little twist on the typical European villain where he's far more self-aware than a lot of those a lot of those characters are ever given the sort of European, we don't really know you, you're a man of mystery. And he very much got the point of like, this character is a cipher for all of what's going on in Germany. I'm not an actual person in terms of the story of this musical. I am what the German public is reacting to. Right. And he kind of embodies it in this really slithery way where he never feels like a villain, but you're always like, this guy's not good news. (laughs) His fence sitting should make you feel gross. Yes. The the fence sitting in this situation should make everybody feel gross. Right. And they do a good job of it. They make it great. The sequence where he and Michael York are driving together and they're talking about the Nazis and he's like, oh, well, you know, we, we're, they're useful to us because we need them to, we, we have to have the Nazis mm-hmm. because we need them to beat up all the communists. And then once they've gotten rid of all the communists, we'll be able to deal with the Nazis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's what they think. <laughs> and it's, you know, who's, who's we, you know, the regular Germans, who's the regular Germans. <laughs> And for him, it's the ruling class. Yeah. And that's Mm -hmm. specifically who he is. And it's the idea that everybody, every one of these fence-sitting people in all of these situations where you can sit on fences, all of those people believe that they are regular Germans. That everybody is just regular. Yeah, he's, he's, he's at least getting that point across, which can honestly be a little difficult for somebody. Mm -hmm. It is interesting that that supporting cast, they very specifically made German. Yeah. I really liked that they made sure to to use a German actor to play this very, very specifically, importantly, German part. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does make it weirder that the other Germans are not German. Well, I mean, oh. actually, only one of our other Germans. Only one, and that's Joel Grey. Yeah. <laughs> the The rest of them are actually all German and European actors. Like, the rest of the supporting cast down the line, we'll talk about the Arpons, they're all European. They didn't cast anybody. I mean, the dancers are dancers and the musicians are musicians. Mm -hmm. But other than that, it's all people in and around Berlin. So that's another one of, like, Fosse's things where he's like, I want to make it real. I want to make this a movie and it's real and we're there. And it's like, okay, but didn't 
didn't have to do that. <laughs> Especially when he goes out of his way to make so many other things unreal. <laughs> I, I know. It's weird. All right. Well, let's talk about the man, the myth, the legend. It's Joel fucking Gray playing the master of ceremonies. He is a Broadway legend. To piggyback from our last episode, he directed a Yiddish adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof that I think is still running off Broadway or did for a long time mm-hmm. at the very least. He is the original MC. Like, he created this role from the ground up and then he extended it further by doing this. Before this, in terms of films, he had a lot of small roles, but this was the first big film he got. But again, he's mostly done stage. After this, he was in Man on a Swing, Buffalo Bill, and the Indians are Sitting Bull's History Lesson, The 7% Solution, Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins, Kafka, The Player, Dancers in the Dark, The Fantastics, and Choke. What do we think of Joel Grey in this movie? I, I think that he's outstanding. Like I said before, I think that he takes a couple of numbers. It feels like he takes a couple of numbers to warm up, which is weird for a movie that is not of a live performance. But once he does, boy, oh boy, he is just absolutely firing on all cylinders. The last like half to two thirds of the MC's numbers are just absolutely unbelievable. All of them. He's lingering throughout the whole movie. The MC is lingering throughout the whole play. It's this ghost that's hanging over all of them. That whole idea of a ticking clock. The idea is that the MC is supposed to represent that. It's interesting because Joel Gray's version is very different than other interpretations of this role. Mm -hmm. Some of that's adaptations and some of that's actors. And that's one of the most interesting things about Cabaret is that every time it's done, the MC is done just slightly differently. Mm -hmm. That's magical because it does change how, how you approach the show. How is the MC going to be involved in this? What is their role going to be? And Joel Gray's is very much a darker interpretation you know Mm -hmm. we talk about the alan cumming one all the time and the alan cumming one is very much of like a greek chorus type of role Mm -hmm. much more directly involved with the audience of pulling them in whereas joel gray's version is very much more of a sinister i'm the one leading all these people to their doom character this sort of indirect puppet master type thing i don't feel like it's so much i'm leading them to their doom but i'm going to distract them while their doom shows up it's true and that includes all the people in the audience sure <laughs> right but the doom never shows up so it's kind of like, yeah i know that's the frustrating yeah. part it's a of missed, the missed opportunities he's great he's doing magnificent you're, you're doing great sweetie it just <laughs> bob messed it up for you yeah yeah, all of, all of the parts of this that take place on a stage all make sense within the context of themselves. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of uh, they just don't maybe necessarily work coherently with the entirety of the film. Sure. Yeah, but it's all so amazing and iconic. I mean, mm-hmm. like money is so good, y'all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The thing is, is like, you know, money's going to be good. And my context for money is that it's a solo. It's the MC. Mm-hmm. I forget that in the original, it's a duet. And then it's not just him. It's him and Liza. And you're yeah. like, what the fuck? 
whoa and they're just like stomping around this state they're oh my gosh they're so good mm -hmm. yes they're having so much fun money makes the world go around the world go around the world go around money makes the world go around it makes the world go around a marker in a buck or a pound a marker in a buck or a pound is all that makes the world go around that clinking clanking sound I wanted more of that and I wanted yes. more interaction with him and Sally and I like again I just want to stay kick at club I don't care about anything else that's happening like show me what you do when you're not on stage more of this needs to take in and around the Kit Kat club mm -hmm. so that the times when we do leave mean a whole lot more yeah, it's so stark because it's daylight and these are, you know, boring people like but in that club. It's hopping. It's amazing. Yeah. It's the shit, even if it's really not because we know it's dingy and everyone's poor. But it's like we are having the time of our lives because we can. Because what else can we do? What else are we going to do? We can sit home be sad? No. Another thing that I think Joel Gray does a really great job of is he has created a person who like with the idea of this being a vaudeville space where the acts sometimes change and things mm -hmm. like that and he is your like sort of constant he has created a person that believably i would come back multiple times a week to see yes yes because truly i, I and having not seen the broadway show the stage musical i know that MC's performance is different every single night yes. because it has to rely on the audience. It does every time. As it should. Yeah. And that that like as as an attraction piece, Joel Gray has created this this character that at the same time seems like fun and funny and disarming and terrifying and sinister and dangerous and sexy and mm -hmm. cool and oh it's just it's masterful i love it very very much he did extensive preparation for the film he actually did a lot of work to get an authentic german accent for the film oh. version so i don't know if he was playing around more and just kind of playing loose with it before the broadway version but he really drilled down for this there was an actor search for the MC, including Joel, and he believes in his memoir that Bob Fosse was trying to make that search fail. Not because he wanted Joel Gray to play the role, but because Bob Fosse wanted to play the role himself. What? I can see that. That man's all ego. That makes sense to me. Look, this is that all that jazz thing. He had to make a movie and, and they wanted him to make Chicago. And instead he's like, no, I'm making a movie about me. <laughs> And then it turned out to be like one of the biggest, most important films ever made. So you're like, well, I don't know. I guess maybe he's got a point. Mm -hmm. Fosse was apparently not a fan of the producers telling him, you have to cast Joel Grey. I agree. <laughs> he understands that. this better than anyone. And apparently casting Grey caused issues with them during filming mm -hmm. because Bob Fosse is that petty. It's Bob Fosse. <laughs> of course it did. Mm -hmm. Of course it caused issues. Well, I can tell you right now, Bob Fosse wouldn't have been fucking better. <laughs> there is one other who could have been better, and that is somebody we have talked about, Anthony Newley. 
he was Matthew in Dr. Doolittle, which we have talked about for this show. Yeah. Uh, magically bad. And he can't carry Joel Gray's Capizios, so... <laughs> Look, Anthony Newley is a great guy. He co-wrote all the music for Willy Wonka, along with composing a lot of other stuff. So, like, great and talented singer and musician. Um, no. <laughs> Absolutely fucking not. <laughs> all right, and that gets us on to a few Arpons. We have Fritz Wepper playing Fritz Wendel. Of course, a German actor, but he was the longtime Watson to Holmes or Joe Friday sidekick on a detective drama in Germany called Derek. That for like 20 years. So it's good work if you can get it. It's like he's like a Chris Maloney. He, he had a long run there. Marissa Berenson playing Natalia Landauer. This is Lady Linden from Barry Linden from our Kubrick series. Oh, okay. And Helen Vida playing Fräulein Kost. She was one of the most famous cabaret singers in Germany. She toured throughout her life after World War II. And I would imagine there are maybe similar stories about some of the other people involved, but there wasn't a whole lot of details on IMDb mm -hmm. of it. But I think they intentionally found some of those older cabaret performers and older German performers to like people who knew what the hell was going on at that time. Yeah. <laughs> lived through it. Okay. Interesting stuff. Awards. This is an interesting topic of discussion. This film was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, and it won eight. Okay. Best original score or adaptation. It wins. Okay, fine. I'm fine with that. Sure. Best editing. It wins. I say no to that. <laughs> it beats The Godfather. No. And Deliverance. I've never seen Deliverance, but I'm sorry. I'm giving it to Francis. Oh, just y'all wait. That's bullshit. That's bullshit. That's some bullshit. Okay. Best sound. It won. Sure. Best art set decoration. It won. Come on. It's going up against The Godfather. Yeah, it doesn't deserve it. Remember. Okay. Okay. Not in every category, but okay. Best Cinematography, it won. Mm, this is getting fishy. <laughs> this, it hurts, but I agree. The fix is in. <laughs> okay, it's, it's more interesting cinematography than The Godfather. Godfather is great. It makes me wonder about that original print. It does. It does. It really does. It makes it me feel does. like some people watched a very different movie than I did. <laughs> Sure. Our restoration might be just a hair off of mm -hmm. what people saw in a movie theater. Sure. And I could also imagine this on a big screen. Watching it on my TV would be very different than seeing this on a big screen mm -hmm. with it moving sure. that fast with all of the crazy pacing. And again, nobody's done a musical like this at this point. Nobody's filmed a musical like this mm -hmm. in 1972. Not with this kind of pace and this kind of frenzied energy. That's true. And at this point, I don't know what cabaret looks like in terms of its place historically in 72 or 71, whatever the movie would have been greenlit or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know how it's done to that point for its like box office lifetime or anything like that. Like it's controversial. I know that. Sure. Or right. I, I like I like I know that I know that people have very strong feelings about it. There were but lots I don't of walkouts. Know. People were really scandalized, but a lot of people went, huh, interesting. 
I don't know how it's done in terms of money for its lifetime up to this point. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It's that's <laughs> it very much is one of those it kind of knocked people over the head. Best actress, Liza Minnelli wins. Sure. An award her mother never achieved. Mm. Many commented at the time that it may have been the Academy offering some restitution, but that does undercut just how good this performance is. Who is she mm. up against? She's up against Cicely Tyson in Sounder, Diana Ross in Lady Sings the Blues, Liv Ullman in The Emigrants, and Maggie Smith in Travels with My Aunt. So nobody's doing anything else that's a runaway. Diana Ross's Lady Sings the Blues has been kind of commented down the road as being like, sure. this is an interesting performance, but I really think Liza blew everybody out of the water Sure, that year. Best Actor in a Supporting Role, okay. Joel Grey wins. Now that's fascinating. Okay. But he beats Eddie Albert for The Heartbreak Kid. Okay, whatever. Eddie yeah. Albert's a TV actor. And then he beats Robert Duvall, James Caan, and Al Pacino for The Godfather. Line them up one after the other. <laughs> Just nail them, Joel. Al Pacino should not be in the supporting actor. He should be in best actor category. Al Pacino did not attend the ceremony in protest of perceived yes. category fraud Agreed. as his performance reflected greater screen time than that of his co-star Marlon Brando. Pacino believed he should have received a nomination for best actor in a leading role. And Al Pacino's fucking right. Pacino's correct. You know that bitch Marlon Brando fucking told that studio. I, I was like, I ain't doing shit. Well, fuck, if you, I'm the only one you're allowed to submit. Now, hold you on. You know that was Marlon. I don't think so. Mm. I think this was the production because this is the year that Brando did not attend the ceremony and he won. <sighs> and he won. And was instead represented by Sachin Littlefeather, who got up and refused the award due to poor treatment of Native Americans in entertainment. I, I'm that, still, I'm still That's mad. true. That is the year that happened. I don't think this is Marlon Brando. I think this is the studio and the producers. Either way, Academy, we've complained about this several times now. There needs to be guidelines about what qualifies. They have it for the Emmys and the Golden Globes. Why are there not qualifiers for what constitutes a best actor position versus a supporting actor position? Pacino never should have been a supporting actor. No, like not in the fucking Godfather. We can, we can talk all day about how we feel about Al Pacino as a person, but like, Sure. That movie is his movie goddamn is about movie. Michael, not his dad. <laughs> it's his goddamn movie. Like what Marlon Brando, you're a supporting actor in this film. I understand because of the gravity of the character, him being in the best actor. Well, position. I mean, he is the godfather, I, but I get it. Al Pacino, no. No, no, no. That was that was I res I respect the refusal to show up. <laughs> but nevertheless, Joel Gray beat all three. Doesn't of matter. Them. You beat him anyway. Wow. Okay, that's definitely a split ticket issue. But I don't I'm, think I, so. I don't care. I think it is a little bit. But enough people had to think Joel Gray was good enough to vote for. Mm, I don't think so. No, no, I get it, but if you're divided between those three of the Godfather, none of them are going to garner enough of the vote. That's what would have happened. Everyone had to be all in on Pacino for Joel Grey not to win. So I bet you the three people from Godfather in that category is the reason why he won. 
like math wise. Now, best director, Bob Fosse Mm -hmm. wins. He beats out John Borman for Deliverance, Joseph L. Mankiewicz for 1972's Sleuth, and some little known guy that you might have you might have never heard of called Francis Ford Coppola for The Godfather. Sometimes people win Oscars and they shouldn't win Oscars. <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> this is a true statement. We do we go through this process every year about bitching about it. It happens all the time. Now here's here's some real fun shit. Mm-hmm. By sheer coincidence, nobody like this wasn't like something planned. Mm-hmm. Bob Fosse and Francis Ford Coppola had awards rivalries. Always. Because in 1974. Mm-hmm. Bob Fosse is up against Coppola again when Bob Fosse does Lenny and Francis Ford Coppola has The Godfather Part 2. And then he does all that jazz in 1979 against Apocalypse Now. That's fu- Okay, that's just funny. And there's another one? <laughs> the other flip side of that is that Apocalypse Now and all that jazz were competing at Con. All that jazz won the Palm Door. Damn. Over Apocalypse Now. I've not seen all that jazz. I have mixed feelings about Apocalypse Now, but like those and two again, are just total coincidence. This was never anything that either of them would have planned, but Bob Fosse and Francis Ford Coppola. Circumstance caused them to just be bodying each other through their whole <laughs> awards career. That's hilarious. That's unbelievable. But when they both made the best films of their careers, because also Coppola put out sneakily, maybe one of my favorite movies that he ever did was The Conversation, the same year he does Godfather Part Two. Hmm. So like all these like weirdly <laughs> circles that they had, it's just weird. Now it did lose two Oscars. It lost Best Adapted Screenplay to The Godfather. Good. And it lost Best Picture to the godfather also good that's one if you whichever film you give it to if you flip it with the director and it's fine to this day cabaret holds the record for most oscars won without winning best picture hmm. which i uh i imagine that you know has to be frustrating in the moment but like here's the thing you eight out of ten godfather. ain't bad guys can't be mad i ain't I'm, gonna i'm calling that no. losing <laughs> with a couple of those that you kind of stole Let's be very clear. You did not deserve that. (laughs) You should hang your head in shame. On to a couple pieces of trivia before we get to our ratings. Isherwood's story, Sally Bowles, was a direct inspiration to Truman Capote on his novel, Breakfast at Tiffany's. In fact, Hmm. if you watch Cabaret and Breakfast at Tiffany's, you'll notice that a lot of story beats match. It's because Capote was pulling directly from Isherwood. Oh, okay. The actual story goes a little bit different than the musical. Gene Ross had an affair with Peter Van Eyck, a jazz pianist and eventual movie star. Though the affair ended, Ross found out she was pregnant. Ross convinced Isherwood to falsely claim to be the father in legal paperwork so that she could get the abortion. But when Isherwood visits Ross in a moment of irony, the hospital staff berates him for his callousness as the father. In Isherwood's story, he is an observer over all of this different stuff. In fact, mm-hmm. I think that's why the play is called I Am a Camera, because it's very much, I am an observer of all of this craziness going on in Berlin. Yeah. So the framing of his story is a lot more distant and detached than what Cabaret built up as a musical. I don't know how I would feel if 
we've got both the MC. Part of it's that you create the MC and then you also have this Isherwood fill in. And it was like, so he's also a third party. That's a weird thing that y'all built for the musical mm-hmm. <laughs> out of this story. Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know. One of them is sort of a fish out of water audience introduction to this world sort of third party. And the other one is a third party the way that like a disinterested old God is a third party. Like the MC is, I don't know, is, is yeah. like more triple removed, I think. Yeah. He's the God in the machine in many, yeah. many ways, uh, but never saves anyone. And finally, Isherwood also states in his memoirs that while Ross never seduced him, they did almost have sex one rainy day when they were just so thoroughly bored they didn't know what to do. She apparently remarked, quote, what a pity we can't make love. There's nothing else to do. Isherwood agreed on both points. Fair. That's what, that's what people used to get up to. That's how it used to be. There's no use to be. It'd still be that way. That leads us to ratings. Ratings? For every film we do on the show we have a specified rating system for this movie <sighs> i don't remember a whole lot of like significant things because they didn't give them stuff they really didn't i could not for whatever reason i couldn't remember the name of the the drink that max gives them i don't know you know i don't know but honestly we've got money money we can just take some coins some coins money money coins how many this times a frank, a yen, a buck, or a pound. Mm. I'll start. Um, You know, we did a long conversation to kind of get to the point of like, this movie's kind of a hot mess, you know, at the end of the day. And the story's kind of a hot mess. And it's interesting because I'm like, there's several different layers of that. I think the original adaptation has a lot of messiness in translation. Mm-hmm. Then it comes to this and they tried to go realistic with it, but then missing the whole point of that realism. Part of this is you're going... You know, y'all are doing something interesting, but it's not necessarily a good adaptation. And Mm -hmm. we have since come up with a better adaptation that really makes sense out of the story. Still, there's the Liza Minnelli and Joel Grey of it all. (laughs) Right. And those moments of brilliance. I think think I'm going to go three. I think it's a little bit better than average. It's a mess, but there's a lot there. And it does make me curious to then go watch all that jazz and be like, okay, now you've had some time, dude. Did you figure this shit out? Okay. Having gotten to sit with the movie a few times in this, the year of our Lord 2021, boy, oh boy, does this make you feel and think some things uh, about the place that we live and find ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. And... (laughs) For all of this movie's faults, which I have I have listed and, and, and talked about ad nauseum, at the end of the day, this movie made me feel and think about things. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want from my art that I'm trying to experience. You know, like I, I could have done anything for two hours. And a movie that makes me feel glad that I spent two hours doing that movie can't be anything less than than a than a good old fashioned American three dollar holler. <laughs> Joel Gray and Liza Minnelli are absolutely incredible. There are some 
strange production things in this that I don't like, but there are going to be things about productions of Cabaret all over the place that I don't like. It's not better than the production I saw in Evansville in 2005, but you know, what can be? (laughs) Okay. I shit on Evansville more than anyone in the world, probably. What a lot of people don't know is that the University of Evansville is the the best place to go for musical theater. It bangs. Yeah, it's it's the place to go for that and nothing else. Mm -hmm. It bangs. You learn. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. My gut number is three. Mm -hmm. Because Liza, Joel, I mean, like, it's not perfect, but I like the cinematography. I love the choreography. I, you know, I've talked about my love of the dancey dancies. I so want to see a stage version so I can get to have that experience. Yeah. And I, I know that once I see that, I'll be like, this movie is garbage. <laughs> I know that's gonna happen. This movie's not garbage. It's just missed opportunities. It can't ever live up to what that musical is able to do. Sure. And I think now is an amazing time to redo this musical who is it ever so just the opportunities for casting and being more inclusive while also still hitting on all of the themes that are happening i want it so bad so yeah yeah that's a three for me that's threes across the board threes hey we meddled pretty good it's worth watching it's just it's not everything we were hoping for or at the very least like i'm gonna go listen to the soundtrack Well, ML, thank you so much for coming on again to talk. Thank you both for having me again. This is absolutely a joy. We adore having you. And if people want to find more of you, where can they find more of you? If people want to find more of me, they can find me personally at It's MLP on Twitter, and they can find more of my show, The LaFrisia Chronicles, on uh, LaFrisiaChronicles.com or at LaFrisia Audio on Twitter. We are coming into a landing on season one. I believe we have two more episodes should be ending just after the first of the year. And uh, we finished our successful crowdfunding campaign for season two. Season two is deep into the recording process right now. I can't wait for everybody to be able to hear it. Congratulations. That's amazing. This has been so much fun. Yes. I can't wait to talk to you guys again. Absolutely. And until next time, have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.